0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Academics can really stress students out. What pressures are they facing? We talk with teachers about what causes they see.
1: Expectations from their friends, from school, from the academics, from teachers, from their parents.
2: And teens tell us what that stress feels like. Maybe like a pit of sand. You know, it's it's hard to, to get out and, you know, it's it's always
0: stuck to you. Then, how the redemption of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol is empowering
3: inmates. This is like a dream. I just feel honored and privileged. And whatever
4: happened in the past, you're still paying for that. You're still gonna pay for it when the show is over, but you're on a mission. We're on a mission together.
0: And the Colorado Ballet finds itself in need of a little holiday cheer when it comes to the elaborate costumes in The Nutcracker. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Academic stress is a big deal. A national survey this year cited academic pressure as the number one stressor in teens' lives. For our ongoing series, Teens Under Stress, I sat down with several high schoolers and teachers to talk about it. Kyler is a senior in Boulder.
5: My academic stress is like always present. It's always a part of my life and it's always something I need to incorporate with whatever I'm doing. But I try to Instead of fight it, work with it and understand that it's always going to be there and I'm going to have to deal with it.
0: Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that might feel a little silly, but if you were to visualize it, what would it look like?
5: Uh, <laughs> no idea. <laughs> maybe, like, uh, maybe like a chair in your room that you don't use. It's just sort of like always there, always present and somewhat uh, cumbersome and like takes up space but you don't have the time to remove it, and so, yeah.
0: I really like that. I think yeah. everybody has that chair in their yeah, life. Exactly. <laughs> I know exactly yeah. what that means. Yeah. More from Kyler and other high schoolers in a moment. First, let's hear from educators about what they see. Amy Paul Rogers is one of Kyler's teachers in Boulder. She's taught middle and high school for 28 years, including teaching in the IB program, AP economics, and freshman government. She lists three main stressors for her students.
1: Friends? Tests, and expectations.
0: What kind of expectations?
1: Expectations from their friends, um, from, from school, from the academics, uh, from teachers, from their parents. I and mean, I think there's that little triangle of, you know, my friends, I don't want to let them down, and I chat with them all the time, and I want to make sure that I, um, you know, kind of keep up my image or my... Uh, persona i teach mostly 12th graders and so you know it sort of comes to a crescendo i think their senior year but it's been you know stress that's been sort of building all the way along so
6: Um, i definitely think everything you just say it makes perfect sense
0: that's young Han lester he teaches high school english at a charter school in denver he's been teaching for six years
6: I would also definitely say, I don't know a good word for this, but that feeling of being in a bubble all the time, a thing that I see students react to pretty frequently is just anytime they feel like someone is telling them what to do or how to be, I think that always is a little stressful trying to meet those kind of adult commands. I also think that uh, like literacy in general, um, just reading and writing, once you're in the 11th, 12th grade, like Most adults in America are not actually reading, like, grade-appropriate texts for an 11th grader. Like, most people let that skill fall off. Um, So, like, I think just working with text of that complexity and writing about it rigorously, I've seen a lot of students who are specifically kind of upset by or traumatized even by having to perform literacy in a school environment.
0: Joining us from CPR's Grand Junction studio, Matt Borgman teaches history and economics at the IB program in Palisade. What stresses out his students?
7: Can I just say everything? <laughs> uh, you know, I just think at that age, there's uh, there's just a lot going on. And, and I'm kind of the same way. I deal with uh, a lot of 12th graders primarily. And uh, it's, it's just that point in their life where they actually do have to think of life outside of high school. And I think the expectations of that create some problems for all of them, some pressure for all of them and in different ways, you know, like some kids are leaving their parents who are willing to just let them go. And so they don't have a lot of guidance or parents that are, um, trying to overly guide them. Um, and I would say another one, I might not be a fan favorite for this one, but sometimes just teachers, teachers that are not organized and kind of throw things at kids last minute or Oh, it's the end of semester, and we didn't get through this. So let's hurry up and get this done. And and a lot of these kids with so much on the table, you know, they're they're really trying to plan things out. They're trying to be organized, and and you just have so many factors that outside of their control that contribute to them being unorganized.
3: Now, I know you can't see, but you're getting some nods on this end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I would have to say that in a place where you have a, a very low socioeconomic population, you have a lot of stress that comes from the family. Trying to put food on the table, trying to have a job where you can help support your family, taking care of your younger siblings, your parents having two, three jobs to make ends meet, sometimes not knowing how the rent's going to be paid. I've seen places where we have that to think about, too.
0: You just heard from Lori Goldstein. She retired recently after teaching middle and high school science for 29 years. Now she's on the Adams 12 school board in Thornton.
3: I think that you have a sense of competitiveness too. You have on one end the low socioeconomic, you have the high, and you have that friction between the two populations that basically the the haves and the have-nots. And then thinking about, well, what are you, What are? What am I going to do when I get out of high school? Am I going to be able to afford to go to college? Um, am I going to be able to get into college because I'm DACA? That sort of. Or thing. if I get in and I can't pay, then how do
1: I save face in front of my friends? And, right. Yeah. Yeah.
7: And there's there's certain, the certainly a lot of truth to that. We had a kid today get into Yale, and my first my first thought was, yay for him. And then my second thought was to all my other students who are waiting for their letters and, and that competitiveness and like, okay, well, he got in, so now who doesn't get in? And they're going to wait for their letters, and do they get into their schools? and. And that competitiveness is not always visible, but man, once those letters start coming in, it does get
1: uh, weird. Another thing that I just thought of in looking at this over time is that it seems like in more recent years, it's almost like they don't want to ask for an extension or a due date, especially the high, like really high achieving kids that are doing the APIB classes. It's almost like, oh, if, if I ask for an extension, that somehow. That they're failing, which is terrible, because that I tell them in in life, you've got to you know check in with your boss, and if you've got a deadline that's not doable, you need to shut that over with your boss. And so, but that's one thing that it's makes me sad because it's like they've internalized the stress so much that they don't feel like they can ask for help. And asking for help might be like the healthy thing for you to do is maybe not do the assignment. Like try like missing those 10 points and just see what that does. It's going to be fine. And so that part is, I think, changed a lot that, you know, they're they're afraid of failing. And, you know, I think that's a bigger picture of our society of how everything is public because you put everything out on Facebook or Snapchat or wherever they put it out. and
7: Yeah, like trying to get kids to advocate for themselves, mm-hmm. and 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 they don't always want to because, you know, they don't want to be the one that gets the exception. But I'm the same way. Like if I'm a boss, I'd rather you talk to me and tell me that it's not doable and let's figure that out together rather than you be late or give me something that's not very good. And so I always tell my kids, you know, come talk to me. If you got something the night before or you got something happening, let's figure it out and let's work something out that works for, for both of us.
3: How often do you have the pressure on the student is actually coming from the parent and, and the kid, the parent is kind of that helicopter parent that comes in and, and the kid never learns how to fail because they're always being rescued. Mm-hmm.
7: <laughs> I think that's the basis of this whole entire problem, to be honest with you. Like, uh, I think a lot of the problem is we don't allow kids to fail until the stakes are too high. Like, we haven't taught our kids how to fail. Middle school, they don't fail, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we've taken away a lot of opportunities for kids to fail and to make mistakes, especially in households where parents are preparing the path for the child instead of preparing the child for the path, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. yeah the um, term I think is snowplow parent now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> helicopter. Exactly.
7: So yeah, totally. And so we, we don't allow kids to fail. And then all of a sudden they're in this situation, 11th, 12th grade, where they're looking to their future. They're trying to get into college. Um, they're, they're doing all these tests, these high stake exams and all of these things. And then, you know, when things don't work out, they don't know how to deal with it. And I think that's part of the whole problem is we haven't really taught our kids how to fail. And that's a big issue.
0: Um, Obviously, students aren't a monolith. Academic stress is going to affect different students differently depending on their background, whether that's in terms of race, culture, socioeconomics. How do you see academic stress relating to your students' identities?
1: I think that goes back to, like, I tell them sometimes, you know, you've got this label that you wear, that you go to this high school, and you've got some swagger because you're really proud of that high school. And what's anxiety-provoking now is like, okay, what's my next label going to be? And, you know, that that's hard for them.
6: I think um, – so I teach at a school where I'm pretty sure the majority of our teachers are white and the majority of our students are not. And I do think that causes some stress for the students. I think having so – you know, and we're not – by any means homogenous, but we do not reflect our population. Um, And having authority figures that you are dealing with for, really, you know, if you think about it from ages kindergarten through 12th grade, for the bulk of your life to that point, if the majority of the people with power, the people presenting themselves as your guides for the future, the people who are the authorities in your life, um, if those do not reflect you, there's a lot of ways that can cause stress. One piece of it being To what degree should I really assume this person actually does know what they're talking about? Sure, this works for them. Does it work for me? Mm -hmm. Um, Can I trust this person's motives when they tell me that I need to change my behavior, that I should change my attitude? Are they actually doing that because that is what is best for me or are they doing this because they're doing what authority always does to me? Um, I think those are very real questions a lot of our students have to deal with. And I think there is also the legitimate fact that truthfully, we probably do due to that difference in cultural background, uh, we don't always understand really what our students need or how to communicate with them effectively to a degree that is perhaps more extreme than just your typical generation gap. Um, And I think the fact that what we think we're communicating doesn't really match what's being heard. And since there is that power difference, it's hard for that miscommunication to be authentically corrected. Um, I think all of those can be vectors to ultimately exacerbate student stress at school.
0: Yeah, that's really big. I think that that's an important stress to draw attention to. Matt, what about you? Uh,
7: You know, I I guess I really hadn't thought of it much, but um, actually my mind first went to our athletes. Like think about a kid who has always been kind of the athlete and always been good at sports, and then they're going to go play college sports and then nobody recruits them, right? And so then how do you you turn around and tell your peers like, oh, well, actually nobody wants me? Um, And I don't think it's any different for academic kids, you know, they've always been top of the class and they want to get into these schools and then they get a letter that says no thanks. Um, And so I think for a kid's identity and and how they're going to continue that or not continue that or how's that going to be fulfilled. Uh, and if it isn't fulfilled the way they want it to, I think that, that that's going to cause enormous stress. You know, how do I, what, what do I put on my Snapchat? What do I put on my social media? And, you know, who do I tell? Who do I not tell? And uh, how am I going to handle that? And, and, and you know, I don't, I don't know as teachers and educators, we always think about that with kids, you know, as they lay down in bed and just got their rejection letter, you know, or whatever it may be, what are they going to do the next day?
3: What are other options?
7: Right. And they don't they don't always see them, right, because they've been so focused on option one that they don't they don't think about the uh, infinite other options they may have.
3: I think sometimes, too, if they're the big fish in the little pond, the thought of becoming that little fish Mm -hmm. again is pretty scary. Yeah. Mm
7: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: So what's a teacher to do? How do you help kids manage academic stress?
1: For me, I find the best thing if I can is try to establish an individual relationship with kids. And a lot of times the kids in my class that are, like, super stressed will sort of self-identify and, you know, send me an email or stop by my office. And in some sense that's really helpful because then I can work with them or adjust due dates or things like that around their, sort of my expectations for them. Um, And so I think that individual... Contact if you can get that, but sometimes kids keep so much inside you can't really tell. Trying to be flexible, trying to be approachable. Um, Sometimes we do a little mindfulness stuff.
3: I think it's important in any system that you have every student has an adult, at least one adult in that building that they can connect with. Because the adult isn't always going to have those answers, but if they know where they can help them turn to to get the help that to guide them, whether it's going to college or whether it's dealing with the stresses at home or with your peers, um, I think it's always important to have that and know how to help a kid navigate through that. What about you, Junghan?
6: Tying back to what Matt said about how teachers are very frequently a source of stress, I try to be very mindful of that in particular. I think a lot of behaviors that are really easy to write off as misbehavior um, are really actually student stress responses. So a lot of the time, whenever I find myself being tempted to think, why aren't they trying harder? Or why are they acting out? I try and kind of stop and wonder, what are the circumstances that make this behavior adaptive? Because this is this person's attempt to solve whatever they perceive as the problem in their life. This is them trying to meet the expectations or priorities that they've kind of set for themselves. So how do I communicate to that student to both understand what they're kind of doing by having their head down, talking back in class, yada, 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 to then make it so that focusing on what we're doing together is actually the productive step for that student from both their perspective and from mine.
0: And Matt, you mentioned... Teachers as a source of stress, how do you help students manage that stress in a way that's not adding to it?
7: Uh, well, I'll second what was kind of said before, and that's, that's relationships. I think that's the number one thing is you really have to do your best to know your kid and develop those relationships. And, um, uh, and I think second is, is that it can really snowball quick. So once one kid starts you know, getting stressed out or complaining or whatever – Um, so I try and stay ahead of it with my group of kids that I primarily teach and really stay on top of, you know, what's going on. And once one kid gets stressed, like, can we help this kid before it just starts to snowball? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I really try to get a feel for my classes. So a lot of the time, you know, I'll set a due date. And when I set that due date, I try and look at their faces and see if I'm contributing or not, (laughs) you know? And so, you know, this is due on Friday. And if they all look at me like, yeah, that's doable, then I keep it. And if they're all looking at me like, no, then I'm like, okay, that's not cool. How about Monday? I'm probably not going to grade it over the weekend anyway. So what's the matter if I get Friday or Monday, right? So... I think it's like parenting, you know, you give them options, but both options you can live with. So I can live with whatever they choose and I kind of let them choose it. So they get a little bit of freedom. They get a little bit of choice, but they feel better about what's going on.
0: Well, I think we're going to wrap up there and bring the students in. Thank you all so much for coming in and having this conversation.
1: Thanks, Avery. And thank you for inviting
0: us. Matt Borgman teaches in Palisade. Lori Goldstein recently retired from teaching in Thornton. Amy Pa Rogers teaches in Boulder. And Young Han Lester in Denver. While they talked, four students listened to the conversation from our studio control room. Then we brought them in for their own discussion. You guys all heard the teachers talking about academic stress and some of the causes. How do you feel like they did naming the causes? I
5: feel like they did a pretty good job.
0: That's Kyler, the senior from Boulder who earlier compared his academic stress to a piece of furniture that you don't like, but that's hard to move.
5: Personally for me, the rigor of the class is that it's necessary for there to be stress and it's necessary for there to be hard tests and stuff like that, and so, and especially with like, they're saying the teachers need to communicate with the students and sometimes that lack of communication can cause the stress. I full-heartedly believe that because Having a connection with your teacher and being able to communicate what stresses you and what doesn't is really vital in uh, reducing the amount of stress.
8: Just building off of that point, um, self-advocacy is definitely a stress reliever. That's Paula. She's a junior also from Boulder, but she goes to a different public school than Kyler. Just having that connection with that teacher and being able to directly go without hesitation is just so much better and knowing that that teacher will be able to help you um, is a stress reliever
0: for me. So I asked Paola what does your stress feel like?
8: It's always there and sometimes it does get to the point where I procrastinate and do it at the end but um, yeah I just have it with me all the time so it's just something that's there.
0: If you were to visualize it, <laughs>
8: okay, good. what would it look like? I, I was thinking ahead. Um, my stress uh, visualization would probably be like a ball of just elastics. It's like all munched together and kind of intertwined between each other.
0: Liliana is a senior in Palisade. Like her teacher, Matt Borgman, she joined us from CPR's Grand Junction studio. She says her academic stress is absolutely ever-present
2: in her life. I would even go as far as to say that it keeps me up at night. Um, And I honestly, I don't know, like visualizing-wise, maybe like a pit of sand. You know, you try, try and find something in there, but you don't know where it is. And um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to get out and, you know, it's, it's always stuck to you, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I will say that like, just like there's physical manifestations of it. Like my shoulders are always tight. My jaw is always clenched and it's, you know, sometimes you forget that it's there and you forget that that stress is there, but it's still with you. Um, and you know, sometimes you notice it and try and try and release it and it just doesn't work and then you can't stop thinking about it and then there are other moments where you know you just kind of forget that it's that your shoulders are tight and that your your jaws clenched until you end up with a migraine <laughs> um so I don't know that's probably the best way I could I could explain it but I will tell you that it does keep me up at night for sure um and one other thing too it's it's hard for some for some students to kind of detach themselves from, you know, persona and, and social media and all the things that we have to deal with. And I think teachers are getting better and better at understanding that because that's not something that really almost any of them grew up with.
0: Rodrigo is our final panelist. He's a junior at the charter school in Denver where Young Han Lester teaches.
9: Personally, I feel like my like academic stress is uh, the JAWS theme. It just like happens and then once I pay attention, it's like kinda too late. Dun-dun. Yeah, pretty. <laughs> much. So yeah, like a lot of times I'll like put it off and be like, Oh, I have time to catch up on my homework and then we'll procrastinate for a month. And then once it actually like hits me, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is due tomorrow. So I will do it the night before. And it's not the best
2: thing.
0: Something else the teachers got right? students said rejection and admission into college is really public. Liliana is in an IB program with about 45 other students.
2: So you get, you know, pretty close to a lot of those kids, Um, and, you know, we've had kids who've gotten rejected from their dream schools, and we have kids who just got into their dream schools, and, you know, you you try not to compare yourself to a lot of those students, and and because, of course, you're paving your own way, and you have your own interests, and you know, our teachers or counselors will tell us that. But, you know, to me, that is probably one of the biggest stressors is, am I going to get in where I want to go? And, you know, am I going to get rejected and have to, you know, go to school in a state that I, you know, right now feel that I don't want to. And I know that it's, it's tunnel vision. And I know within myself that that's, you know, maybe not the best attitude to have. But it's, it's really hard not to compare yourself to other students, especially when you are such close friends with a lot of them. Um, but, I mean, the teachers, I, I would say, did a really good job of identifying a lot of those stressors. After the break, these students talk about how technology and their cultural backgrounds factor into
0: the pressure they feel from school. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
7: Hi, I'm Stuart VanderWilt, President of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank
4: you.
0: Let's get back to our conversation with high schoolers Liliana, Paola, Kyler, and Rodrigo. We're talking about the stress they feel from school. We talked about one type of technology in particular. Teachers at their school post grades and assignments online. That means even when they're home from school, they can check on their phones to see if their teachers have posted grades. Here's Kyler.
5: The stress for me comes in the fact that you're waiting for it. And so the anticipation of a grade of, like, whether or not you did well or if you failed and knowing that it could come at any moment, not just in class, oh, pass the paper back. here's your grade. It could be any notification at any time.
9: Well, like how you were saying earlier, it's like that anticipation. It's like you want to get that good grade, you don't know if you are. And uh, it can go two ways. It's like you do get that good grade and you have this, like, just pressure lifted off. But the moment, like, you see it's a bad grade, it, like, discourages you. It makes you not want to just try anymore. Uh, But then there's, like, that point where, like, you can always keep on checking it. And that bad grade would just always be there, like, staring unless you fix it. You see it, and it reminds you again. Yeah, it's, like, it's just, like, that buildup of pressure.
2: I definitely agree. And I will say I actually really like being able to have it in front of me wherever I am. For some of the extracurriculars that I'm involved in, I have to do quite a bit of traveling. And being able to just access what I know is missing and what I know I need to do is really, really convenient for me. And our grade program doesn't send out notifications, so I will say that's definitely a plus. But you know, being able to log in and see at any given moment I mean, I guess for some tests and things, there there's a little anticipation. But for me, it helps me stay organized. And I think just on the level of convenience, I do really like having that in front of me. But it only works when I have a teacher who is organized and has actually put in what they said they're going to put in. And we have you know, some fantastic teachers and they have all their assignments in the grade book, but we have other teachers who, I guess that's the nicer way to put it is that's not their style. Um, And not knowing what you did and didn't turn in or what they did and did not receive, especially with us turning in a lot of assignments online now, I think can cause a little bit of stress and discombobulation. But I, I really like having it right in front of me all the time. Lily, you mentioned extracurriculars. Um, What kind of extracurriculars are you guys involved in outside of class? Um, so I I do a couple of different things. There are some, some basics like National Honor Society and things like that. At our school, we have a Future Business Leaders of America chapter. I'm involved in marching band and our leadership team doing some choreography. I'm doing choreography for our musical, and I work on quite a few political campaigns, and I'm the chair of voter registration organization here on the Western Slope. And that's kind of my my short list. So I, I will say I'm, I'm pretty involved and I, I do love every second of it. I'm sure any of the other students on this panel will tell you that like it it gets pretty overwhelming pretty fast when you're trying to balance balance all of those things. That does not sound like a short list at all. <laughs> <laughs> How much are you sleeping? Um, so not a lot. Uh, and it, it's finals time too, which kind of doesn't help. But I know that Sometimes sacrificing my health is not the best thing to do, but it needs to be done for me to uphold the responsibilities that I've, I've committed myself to.
0: When you say not a lot, how many hours is that?
2: (laughs) Um, well, on a, gosh, um, on a good night, I want to say honestly probably about four, four or five. And that's, it's really not healthy. And thankfully our school start time was, um, Our start time used to be 7.25, and this year it was changed to 8, which I know has improved my mental health. Mm -hmm. Kyler, I saw you nodding your head knowingly.
5: Our school did the same thing. Ours moved it from 8 to 8.30, and I just want to say that personally, at the beginning of the school, I didn't think it was going to help or do anything because it's just 30 minutes, but it, it really did help a lot. And from last year to this year, I feel a lot better waking up. Mm-hmm. Which is actually surprising.
0: Paola and Rodrigo, what about you guys? For the stuff that you're involved in outside of class, what does that mean for you and the what's on your plate?
9: Um, well, I'm part of a National Honor Society. I'm not part of any clubs or anything. I held down a job for the first half of like my few years at high school. That's a big deal. So Yeah, that's about it. (laughs) Tell me about
0: how, like, working and going to high school, how that affects your stress.
9: Uh, In all reality, I'm probably not the best person to talk about this (laughs) because I probably, like, did (laughs) one of the, like, major flaws that you're not supposed to do. And I prioritized work over school. So it was, like, I'm going to go to work and then work a few hours shift and then go home tired and then fall asleep immediately. Not do homework and then be confused in, like, the subject and what we're doing in class. So, yeah, it probably wasn't, like, the best thing, but, yeah.
0: (laughs) I think that's a really important perspective. A lot of people have to work in high school or choose to work in high school, and that's a lot to manage. Paula, what about you? Um, Well, at the beginning of my
8: going in as a freshman, I tried out for the cheer team. Um, It was definitely a challenge just to, At first, be committed to all those um, mandatory meetings during the summer. And then as school um, rolled in as a freshman, I was having a really hard time um, just getting all the assignments in because of how much physical work is needed to do the stunts and everything. So unfortunately, I had to quit the team. But despite that, um, I really got involved in a lot of community service-based clubs. Um, I'm part of the leaders of Latino student organization at my school, and just some other things sprinkled around too.
0: How is it juggling homework and all of those?
8: Um, I would say that it's quite hard, and my parents could probably agree that I sometimes show that I'm stressed and can't take it anymore. And just the fact of knowing that I want to balance my schoolwork and doing these leadership opportunities and community service-based clubs is hard because I don't want to let go, but it's just finding that balance. And I would say that the thing that helps me out the most for doing this is um, not putting things to the last minute and reaching out to help as soon as I need it. These teens
0: have a lot on their plate juggling homework and extracurriculars. We also asked them the same question we asked their teachers. How do race and ethnicity, socioeconomics, and identity affect their stress at school?
8: <laughs> All right, I guess I'll go right ahead. Um, Definitely, my school, it's predominantly white. And I would say that sometimes it is kind of hard going into class realizing that you are the only student of color. So, like one of the teachers mentioned before, um, minorities need more role models they can actually connect to in order to succeed in a way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, kindergarten through now I'm a senior, I have never had... A teacher of color, especially of my own ethnicity, I identify as Hispanic as a a teacher other than a Spanish teacher. Um, And I think that that definitely has affected me as, you know, the the daughter of an immigrant who, you know, has constantly not necessarily helicoptered. I, I love my mom to pieces, but I mean, she expects the best because she sacrificed, you know, a lot and I think that while I'm, I'm very lucky, both my parents have have doctorates and, and I consider them very well accomplished in life and, and they're fantastic role models for me, but they're not even close to the path I want to go on. And I think that definitely some stress personally for me comes from not seeing teachers have the breadth of knowledge that I want to eventually attain who look like me and who who have had, you know, similar cultural experiences to me. Um, (laughs) Well,
9: yeah, so I gotta agree with that. Um, I come from a single-parent household. Uh, My mom did come to this country when she was, like, about 20. And Mm -hmm. um, my mom doesn't have a full, like, high school education. She did leave high school in Mexico. So... Education-wise, like, there is such a big disconnect because in, like, the United States, we're taught different things based on how much money your school is getting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've noticed this, like, pretty uh, commonly when I was, like, super young. I, like, went to schools that weren't really funded, right? Teachers were there just to be glorified babysitters. And... In, like, our reality, my mom doesn't understand, like, that there is this huge disconnect because a lot of the teachers that I did get came from a different background. They came from a complete opposite background that I had and that my mom had.
0: And then, of course, we couldn't let them go without asking about college. They're all considering four-year colleges, and none of them knows where they're going yet. Liliana especially talked about the pressure she's feeling from college applications.
2: I don't necessarily feel the pressure to have, you know, life after after high school and after college figured out. But I I do feel pressure to balance, you know, my list of extracurriculars plus a rigorous IB program and applying to these colleges. And and I know that my academics have suffered trying to balance all of these and stay healthy. And I, I know that I'm not the only one. <laughs> um, and, and I know that. Um, any any student who's applying for college is, is going to be feeling the same way. But I, I do feel, you know, pressured because everybody asks, you know, all your family asks, you know, where do you want to go to college? And I'm like, well, here's where I want to go. You know, and then six months later, they're like, oh, did you get in? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's what I'm afraid of. And, and I don't know, it's it's kind of just processing that, that idea of, you know, do I say that I might not get in? Do I have hope? Like how, how do I even process that? And then after I get an acceptance or a rejection, like what, what do I do? I really have no idea. And I guess I'll cross that bridge when I get there. But I mean, honestly, it's, it, it does feel like a lot of pressure just to even just to know and have that status of, you know, I got into a selective school or, or I didn't. So, yeah. That's Liliana, a senior who goes to school
0: in Palisade. Kyler and Paola are from Boulder, and Rodrigo is from Denver. They sat down with me to discuss academic pressure as a part of our ongoing series, Teens Under Stress. What do you want to know about the pressures teens face today? Let us know and check out our other stories in the series at cpr.org teens. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. So the last thing is, with academic stress, I'm still on just how do we visualize academic stress. Okay, so this is our group activity. If you were to visualize your academic stress as a meme, how could you do that?
9: All right, this is where I uh, achieve, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like my academic stress as a meme is just the Bad Luck Brian meme. It's like, I think I'm doing good, and then I end up messing it up way worse than I thought I could.
0: Describe the Bad Luck Brian meme for someone who doesn't know it.
9: Oh, it's the meme of the, like, nerdy guy with braces wearing a sweater vest.
0: He's kind of just, like, smiling. He's got, like, yeah. kind of a vacant smile.
9: Yeah, like... I always think I'm like
0: oh I'm doing good in school
9: and then I'll like see that I have like 14 assignments to do the next <laughs> day and I'm just like oh I guess not <laughs>
0: Tiny Tim has been blessing everyone while Jacob Marley shakes his chains at Ebenezer Scrooge for 176 years. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, adapted for screen and stage, remains a holiday staple. I attended a recent performance where a Colorado theater initiative adds fresh poignancy to Scrooge's redemption story. A woman in coattails and a curly bob struts to the center of a snow-strewn stage. It's Ebenezer Scrooge, angry and bickering with everyone in sight. It's a cross-gender cast by necessity. The crew and actors are all incarcerated at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility. The inmates are performing to a full house at the University of Denver's Newman Center. It's a public venue, and their three performances sold out. Patrice Poley has been in prison since April. She could be eligible for parole this spring.
3: This is like a dream. I just feel honored and privileged, and I think it's so awesome that our DLC has enough trust in us and enough faith in us to bring us out here into the public. This is the
0: second time the Colorado Department of Corrections, the DOC, has partnered with DU's Prison Arts Initiative to take a play on tour. In September, inmates of Sterling Correctional Facility performed One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in other Colorado prisons. The goal of arts initiatives like this is to make life inside prison as much like life outside prison as possible. The way DOC's executive director, Dean Williams, sees it, it's a matter of safety.
4: Where things are the worst and the most dangerous is where us versus them lives big. And this experience reduces us versus them. And whatever happened in the past, you're still paying for that. You're still going to pay for it when the show is over. But you're on a mission. We're on a mission together.
0: And that idea that the past is unchangeable, but the future is full of possibility is central to A Christmas Carol. After the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future show miserly Scrooge how he hurts people and drives them away, he, or in this case, she, screams to the ghost of Christmas future. Why
2: show me this if I'm past all hope?
0: Why show me this if I am past all hope? Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. Jamelia Nelson, who plays young Scrooge, tears up backstage when she hears that monologue. Nelson has served 12 years for first-degree murder. She'll be in for at least another decade.
3: I would never say we deserve our freedom when we've taken from society, but the fact of the matter is, is we're going back out into society. So, um... To have society on our side, you know, not opposed to us, it's just profound and we're crying for that uh, redemption.
0: Most of these incarcerated actors will eventually be released. But statistically, in Colorado, half of all inmates, male and female, will end up back in prison. Reentry into society is a challenge. It demands soft skills, such as appropriate emotional expression, compromise, and determination. Prison can be a hard place to practice. Nelson and DU Prison Arts Initiative Director Ashley Hamilton see theater as a place to build healthy relationships and practice self-expression before inmates are released.
10: They're going to, you know, be our neighbors. They're going to work with us. And
1: we want folks to come home feeling set up to be successful so that they can stay home and so that no more harm can be caused.
0: In the meantime, inmates are acting out Scrooge's second chance on stage. Tens of thousands of people see the Colorado Ballet's Nutcracker each year. But there's something the ballet hopes audiences won't see. Aging costumes and props held together by duct tape. The ballet is now raising
10: money to replace it all. Here's CPR's arts reporter, Stephanie Wolf. From the audience, you might think, these costumes look fine. Good even. But a closer look tells a different story. Take the Nutcracker Prince top, for example. From my
2: experience, those costumes have had so much sweat on them that they are now more cardboard than they are fabric.
10: That's principal dancer Francisco Estevez. The costumes were built for the San Francisco Ballet in 1986. Colorado Ballet acquired them in 2005. They've been worn by many different dancers over those 30-plus years. And each season, they have to survive nearly 30 performances. Estevez has even gotten tangled in his partner's fraying costume and had to rip it on stage to free himself. Today, however, a different costume emergency. As one dancer changed from his party scene getup into his mouse costume, the zipper broke. Luckily, Shirin Lankarini was nearby. She's Colorado Ballet's wardrobe manager. And we
0: put the safety pin, keep him on because we couldn't take him out.
10: A quick fix with several large safety pins, and they send the dancer on stage for the battle scene.
0: And sometimes this happens, like this elastic rope, we need to put it together.
10: And it's not just elastics and zippers. For instance, the heads of the mouse costumes are disintegrating inside. So the dancers must wear goggles to keep the debris out of their eyes. Lynn Kereny says she does repairs all the time. In fact, she has to start doing those repairs in the summer to get the costumes ready for the holiday season run. On top of that, there's the constant battle of keeping them smelling fresh.
0: For briefs in the every dressing room, sometimes dancers do it themselves. There's like some costumes so <laughs> bad, we bring them here and we overnight. We do the vodka and ready for the next day.
10: Yes, vodka. Lenkherini and her team use a spray bottle to spritz the particularly pungent costumes with vodka. As bad of shape as the costumes are in, the sets and props are even worse. Randy Mitchell is the ballet's technical director. Drops
6: starting to tear, props starting to fall to pieces.
10: Up close, you see the globs of glue holding the Nutcracker doll together duct tape is wrapped around the arms of mother ginger to keep them intact. The crew repair sets with something called tear mender.
6: It's a glue type stuff that you put on there and you patch it with either duvetine or muslin or something like that.
10: Another trick up their sleeve lighting.
6: When uh, you have a, a blemish a tear or something that needs fixed you can always change the way you light something so it doesn't show as much until you can get to it to repair it permanently.
10: Artistic director Gil Boggs says this is the last year they'll use these sets and costumes.
4: You know, it's bittersweet looking at them and knowing this is the last time, but uh, before it disintegrates on us, we need to move on.
10: The new ones will come with a hefty price tag, $2.5 million. The ballet says it's already raised about a million of that. It's also launched a crowdfunding campaign. Why so much money, though? First, there's the design cost. They aren't just replicating these costumes. And the nearly 300 costumes will be mostly handmade. Every bit of tulle and every gem you see on that Sugar Plum Fairy tutu will be hand-stitched. The sets will be hand-painted, too.
4: Then once we get them, we have to do an extra week of tech here in the theater because they're all brand new and get used to the sets and costumes. Uh, So that's an added cost there.
10: If you're wondering, but isn't the Nutcracker a big seller? Why not use that money? It's true. The ballet does well. Last year, it brought in nearly $3 million an all-time high for any Colorado ballet production. And it's on track to match or exceed that this year. But that money is already spoken for. Ticket revenue helps cover basic annual operating expenses, like dancer and staff salaries. New York-based Holly Hines will design the new costumes. She was the director of costumes for New York City Ballet for more than 20 years. Hines will take cues from the performance this year.
3: It's almost like going on an
1: archaeological dig to come into Colorado and to see it performed, see the dancers, and really see the choreography up close so that I know what they're expected to do in their costumes.
10: She wants to honor what people have come to expect from the Colorado Ballet's Nutcracker. But maybe bring it
1: up a notch and make it even more magical than they remember so that uh, it becomes a new experience.
10: As for the old production, the ballet hopes to donate the costumes. Smaller companies or schools might still get some life out of them. But the sets and props? Well, those will likely be retired for good. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. If music be the food of love, play on.
0: The opening words to Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. For Denver musician Tom Hagerman, that line cuts right to the heart of why he plays music and why he was game when the Denver Center for the Performing Arts tapped him to give a musical makeover to their production of Twelfth Night. The title of Shakespeare's romantic comedy refers to the twelfth night after Christmas Day, historically an occasion for feasting and revelry. Servants would dress up as their masters, men as women, and so forth. Shakespeare drew from these rituals for the play's gender-bending plot.
4: It's just about lovers, you know, and people falling in love, and there's some gender confusion, and it's such a sweet idea of humanity. Just, everybody's just falling in love with everybody and not sort of caring.
0: Tom Hagerman is best known as a member of the Denver band Dvachka, but this is not his first foray outside the world of rock and roll. He's collaborated with the Colorado Symphony, the Wonderbound Dance Company, and in 2016, he made new musical arrangements for the DCPA's production of Sweeney Todd. Artistically, Hagerman says returning to the theater was a no-brainer. Plus, he's no stranger to Shakespeare.
4: I mean, I could recite a little Hamlet if you want. I read Shakespeare uh, the same way other people come up with, like, that would be a great band name kind of games. I used to, on like my solo records, I would just flip through Shakespeare books and pluck a line out of it, and that would be the name of like a track. I just love the, the way a sentence of his will just nail an idea. It's such a beautiful use of language.
0: Twelfth Night, Hagerman returned with music director Angela Steiner and artistic director Chris Coleman to compose music that is performed on stage by the actors themselves. True to Dvachka's own style, the score is an eclectic musical stew. A little old world with some unique instrumentation.
4: So I wanted to use bazookis, which is originally a Greek instrument. There's like big mandolins. It gives it an exotic flavor. And I ended up asking some of the actors to play hand drums because Chris asked me for these jam sessions and I figured you can't have sort of a hippie jam circle without some djembes. I mean, if you've ever been up to Pearl Street in Boulder, you will see the djembes in full effect.
2: Tom
0: Hagerman composed music for the DCPA Theatre Company's production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, which runs through Sunday. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.